Today we continue our study of the book of Hebrews as we come to chapter 7. And chapter 7 uh, continues to develop the primary or central theme of the book of Hebrews, which is the supremacy of Christ as our great and faithful high priest. So uh, again, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 7. I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you came in. And let's begin uh, by looking at that introduction statement in your sermon notes. The knowledge and significance of Jesus being our high priest is possible only on the basis of the book of Hebrews. In no other book in the New Testament is Jesus designated a priest. Let me just pause right there. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. In no other book in the New Testament is Jesus designated a priest. Now, in other books, we see some priestly ministry, but it's here in the book of Revelation that we get this beautiful, magnificent revelation of Christ as our great and faithful high priest and the ministry that he conducts right now for us. So, this book not only looks back Uh, to what He did through His death, burial, and resurrection. It not only looks forward to our coming hope when He returns, but it looks to Jesus as a present reality, a present help in our time of need where we can find grace and mercy. And this is the value of the book. And then moving on with that statement, although the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our high priest earlier in the book, here in chapter 7, He proves the superiority of Christ's priesthood as absolute, final, and permanent, making the Old Testament Levitical priesthood with its sacrifices, ceremonies, and rituals obsolete. And this was extremely important to the Hebrew Christians to whom the book was written. Uh, We've already seen that they were suffering uh, from terrible persecution. And so due to persecution... Uh, They were struggling, faltering, and they were tempted to find security by retreating back to their former Old Testament Judaism, which they were very familiar with and comfortable with. The writer, the purpose of this seventh chapter is to demonstrate the sheer futility of leaving the greater, which would be Jesus, and returning to the lesser, which would be their Old Testament Judaism. And he points them, of course, to Jesus, their faithful high priest, who is able to save forever those who draw near to God uh, through Him. And the way the writer proves the supremacy of Christ's priesthood over the Old Testament priest is by reaching back into the Old Testament uh, to a mysterious character named Melchizedek, who is remembered for a single incident in the life of Abraham that is recorded in Genesis chapter 14. Now, let me just be upfront with you. Many folks find chapter 7 very difficult to interpret, very difficult uh, to understand. And it's important to realize why that is a reality that we face. The book of Hebrews was written to people who had a very rich Jewish heritage, but who, through faith, had come to know Jesus as their personal Messiah, their personal Savior. These folks were very familiar 
with the teachings and the personalities of the Old Testament. They were very familiar with the Levitical priesthood, with all the sacrifices, riches, rituals, and ceremonies, because they lived this for many, many years. This was their life. It literally evolved around that Judaism. Uh, most of us, on the other hand, uh, we're not a- acquainted uh, with Jewish traditions. Uh, we're not acquainted with the Levitical priesthood and the temple worship and a lot of the uh, lingo that's connected with all of that. Uh, we struggle, let's be honest, with pronouncing names like Melchizedek, uh, not to mention to try to figure out the significance uh, of Melchizedek. Th- therefore, my goal today, and this is the approach I'm going to, I'm ho- I hope to be very simple. Uh, I hope to uh, just walk through this chapter in a very casual, comfortable manner. And I don't want us, here's my goal, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. And what I mean by this, I don't want us to get so bogged down in the many details and intricacies of this chapter that we miss the big picture. The main point of this chapter, which is the supremacy of Christ's priesthood and what we have in Him. Uh, And then, of course, as we conclude, I want you to see, okay, how does this truth apply to us today? So first look with me at the significance of Melchizedek, the significance of Melchizedek, and here it is. He foreshadows Christ. He foreshadows Christ. In other words, he's an Old Testament type or figure or illustration of Christ in his future ministry. Uh, Now let me, I, I need to just review for you the Genesis 14 passage. Uh, I had intended for us to actually turn there and read it, but just for the sake of time, uh, let me review what happened in Genesis 14, because in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, the writer is focusing on this encounter that Abraham had with Melchizedek. And what you have in Genesis 14 is that there is an alliance of kings that invade the territory of Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding region. And they conquer Sodom. They defeat the forces of Sodom. And they go into the city, and they literally strip the city of all their material goods, of all of their possessions, of all the livestock, of anything of any value. And then they also take slaves. And one of the people that they took as a slave that they captured was Abraham's nephew. And what was his name? Lot, who lived uh, in Sodom. Abraham learns of Lot's capture and of the defeat of the forces of Sodom and what the opposing forces had uh, taken. And so he gathers up a force of himself and he goes after uh, this, uh, this enemy force, and he uh, confronts him one evening. God is uh, good. He's able to defeat their forces, and he's able to retrieve all the goods that had been taken. He was able to uh, get all of the slaves, including his uh, uh, nephew Lot. And then as Abraham is returning to Sodom to return the people, to return all the goods Suddenly, he's met by this mysterious character that seems to come out of nowhere, and his name is Melchizedek. 
And he's called the king of Salem. And Salem was an actual city. So he was, he was a king. But it says he was the priest of the most high God. And he brings refreshment to Abraham and his men. He brings them uh, bread. He brings them wine uh, just to strengthen them after the battle that they had been in. And then the focus is that he does two things in relationship to Abraham. First, he blesses Abraham. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then Melchizedek receives from Abraham a tithe. Abraham gives him a tenth of all the spoils that they had gained from uh, overcoming the enemy force. Now, that's the story. And that's the only mention of of, uh, Melchizedek in the uh, Old Testament other than Psalm 110. And we'll be uh, looking at that a little more carefully later on. But Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Uh, and, it, and it uses Melchizedek saying that Christ's priesthood would be after the order of Melchizedek. So, just following your notes, we're just going to do this in a very casual manner, hopefully very deliberate, simple manner. Again, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, but we just want to extract from this chapter uh, the main points and glean from them. And the first is this, like Christ, Melchizedek was a royal priest. In other words, he is both king and priest. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, The name Melchizedek in the Hebrew means righteousness, means righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So he's a royal priest, he's both king and priest, his his names mean righteousness and peace, and of course, what is the primary duty and ministry of a priest? It's to bring people to the righteousness of God, that they might come to know what the peace of God. Now... The significance of this to those Hebrew Christians that would have been initially reading this, the thing that they would have just immediately noticed is that he was both a what? A king and a priest, which was just an absolute contrast to the Old Testament priesthood. Because remember, in the Old Testament priesthood, a priest could never invade the authority of the king, and a king could never invade and occupy the ministry of the priesthood. You remember there were several kings that actually tried to do that, and God severely judged them when they did. So again, in the Old Testament, these two offices were always kept separate. So this is very unique. So like Melchizedek, Christ is both what? King and priest. He's not only our priest who mediates between us and God, who brings us to God, but He's also the King who rules over our lives, whose sovereignty rules over the affairs of this world, of this universe. Look at the second point. Like Christ, Melchizedek was a priest by God's appointment and not on the basis of human descent. Look at the first half of verse 3. Referring to Melchizedek, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, just stop right there. Now, it's this portion of chapter 7 that has brought a lot of confusion. People read that. Man, no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end of life. They say, well, this must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. Others say, no, this is just an angel. Others say, no, it's some sort of superhuman creature, sort of superhero. And folks, we do not need to go that far. This would have been so simple to those Hebrew Christians who would have initially been reading this. The point that is being made is that when Melchizedek shows up, in other words, this guy was a real king over a real city. He, He was a real person. When he showed up, there's no mention of his genealogy. There's no mention of who he was born to. No mention of his death. And the Hebrew, the Hebrew Christians who were reading this, they would immediately picked up on that. Because in the Old Testament priesthood, genealogy meant what? Everything. I mean, you could not be a priest unless you were in the bloodline of the family of Levi. You literally had to trace your ancestry back to Levi. But not so with Melchizedek. And so the point is that just like Melchizedek's priesthood was not on the basis of genealogy or human descent or bloodline, neither is Christ. They were both simply appointed by God to be a high priest. Look at the third truth. Like Christ, Melchizedek was a priest forever. Look at the latter part of uh, chapter, uh, verse 3. But made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Again, notice, couldn't have been Jesus. He says he was like the Son of God. Wasn't Jesus, but like the Son of God. Also notice in verse 4, It says, observe how great this man was. So this was a man, again, not Jesus, but a type, a figure of Christ. And the fact that he was both king and priest, that he came to his priesthood, not on the basis of bloodline, but on the basis of God's appointment, and then he's a priest forever. The fact that there is no stated beginning or end, the writer picks up on that and draws that analogy to Christ who has an eternal priesthood. And then look at the fourth truth, like Christ, Melchizedek was greater than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And the way the writer demonstrates this is to show that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people. He's considered their their greatest personality in their history. I mean, he represents the nation because it was from his loins that the Jewish nation was birthed and was developed. So look at these verses with me, and there are two things focused on here. That Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and the point he makes is, well, it's always the greater that, that blesses the lesser. And then the fact that Abraham gave him a tithe, uh, verse 4 through verse 10. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, that's the Old Testament priesthood, who received the priest office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, 
although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, again referring to Melchizedek, he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Again, don't miss the forest for the trees. You see the simple point. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And it's proven by the fact that Melchizedek not only blessed Abraham, but he received a tithe from Abraham. And he's saying when Abraham gave Melchizedek the tithe, it was like all Israel tithing Melchizedek because it would be through his loins that the nation again would be birthed and it would be developed. So the significance of Melchizedek is that he foreshadows Christ in those four ways. He was a royal priest. His priesthood was not on the basis of human descent, but by God's appointment. He was a priest forever. And uh, in other words, uh, let me go back to that. There was no what? Predecessor and there'll be no successor. That was true of Melchizedek. You see no predecessor to him. You see no successor to Melchizedek. And same with the Lord Jesus Christ. A priesthood forever. Now look at the, uh, and of course Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and the Levitical priesthood. Now look at the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood. Not only greater than, but replaces the Old Testament priesthood. In other words, the, the point he's driving home in this chapter is Melchizedek, yes, foreshadows Christ. And he gives him the opportunity to put the spotlight on Christ as our high priest. But he's also emphasizing, hey, he's not only great, the Melchizedek order of priesthood is not only greater than the Old Testament priesthood, it replaces it. It makes it obsolete. And, of course, the focus here is uh, verses 11 through 28. And it all evolves around uh, Psalm 110. And there's just uh, one verse that refers to Melchizedek in the middle of that psalm, Psalm 4, that reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. It's a messianic psalm looking forward to Christ's coming. It says, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So look at the points that you have here. First, the prophecy of a future priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, implies that the Levitical priesthood was insufficient. And it was always meant only to be temporary, not permanent. Uh, Look at verses 11 and 12. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. Uh, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. In other words, the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament was unable to accomplish God's intended goal, which was what? To change the heart of man. Couldn't do that. The Levitical priesthood was all about externals. 
Now, they were, it was important because it was providing what? A picture of Jesus. But the point is, it was just a shadow, not the substance. It was just a picture, not the real deal. But in Christ, you have substance. In Christ, you have the real deal. And so why do I want to play around looking at pictures of my wife when I have my wife and I can enjoy her presence, I can enjoy her fellowship? You follow me? So the prophecy of a future priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, it implies the Levitical priesthood was always meant to be a temporary, just a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, but then it would become obsolete once the real thing arrived. Look at the second truth. Jesus is the new superior priest appointed and announced by God in the prophecy of Psalm 110. Verse 13, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken, that's a reference to that prophecy in Psalm 110, which will be alluded to a couple of times a little bit later in this chapter. He says, he belongs to another tribe for which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which uh, Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. He's just making a simple point. Was Jesus of the tribe of Levi? No. And all the priests came from Levi. That was, a, that was required. But Jesus was the tribe of Judah. So it's very obvious, just like Melchizedek, him becoming a priest had nothing to do with bloodline, had nothing to do with genealogy, but by God's appointment, when God swore, when God made an oath, you shall be a priest of mine after the order of Melchizedek. Look at the third point. Jesus' priesthood is superior because it is based on the power of an indestructible life demonstrated in His resurrection from the dead. Verses 15, 16, and 17. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, in other words, not on the basis of genealogy, bloodline, but according to the power of an indestructible life, and what's that referring to? The resurrection, that the grave could not hold Jesus. That Jesus' life overcomes all things. So, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see here that Jesus is much superior than anything the Levitical priesthood could, could be because he ministers in the power of an indestructible life. He can overcome anything. Nothing's impossible with God. There's no heart so dark that he cannot penetrate. There's no need so great that he cannot meet. A Levitical priest could, could never make that guarantee. A Levitical priest could never say, I guarantee you a home in heaven. He could never say, I guarantee you cleansing from guilt, deliverance from the power of sin. But Jesus can because he ministers in the power of an indestructible life. He ministers in the power of the resurrection. Look at the fourth truth. Jesus' priesthood is superior because it establishes a right relationship with God and grants access to God's presence, something the old priest the Old Testament priesthood could never achieve. Look at verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, referring to that Levitical priesthood, commanding their establishment, 
because of its what? Weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect because it couldn't change the heart. It just dealt with exteriors. And on the other hand, there is a bringing, this is through the Christ priesthood, a better hope through which we draw near to God. So you see here, Jesus is superior because he can do what Levitical priests could never do. Think about this. How far did the Levitical priesthood take men into God's actual presence, his immediate presence? Think about it. At best, you could say it just cracked the door because only the high priest one time a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest only one time a year on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy Holies, into the immediate presence of God. But folks, Jesus is superior. Why? Because 24-7, we have access to the Holy of Holies. 24-7, we can go right into God's presence. I mean, this morning in my devotions, I was just praising Him. I said, God, thank you, thank you that you canceled out my sin debt. Thank you that you imputed to me the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I come, I come boldly. I come confidently, not on the basis of my performance, which is sad, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ. And I come as Christ's brother to my Lord and Master, to my Heavenly Father. See, that is our inheritance as believers. That is our right of access to His presence. It's been given to us not on the basis of our righteousness, but the righteousness which is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Something the Old Testament priesthood could never, never achieve. Look at the fifth truth. Jesus' priesthood is superior uh, because He guarantees the fulfillment of the new covenant, making the old covenant obsolete. Uh, look at verses 20 through 22. And as, as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests, without an oath. Again, it was just on the basis of bloodline. But he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And what is that better covenant? It's the new covenant. What is the new covenant? It's simply the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. It's the rightful inheritance of all believers. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is your inheritance. And three things. First, pardon from sin. He said, I will remember your sins no more. As far as the east and as west, so I've taken away your sins. Remove them. So that now I can have a disposition of love towards you. A love, as I've mentioned many times before, that will not let you go. That will never fail you. And yes, it will not let you off as well. It is correct. It will correct. It will discipline. But never again will you ever know God's condemnation. Will you know God's judgment? Everything God does will be out of a motive of love. Thinking of your development. Thinking of your future. Thinking of what's ultimately best for you spiritually. Not only pardon, but purity. He says, I'm going to do something the Old Testament priesthood. And the old covenant could never do. I'm going to take out that stony, hard heart, and I'm going to replace it with a heart that has a hunger for me, that has a thirst for me, that has a love 
for me. And then the third promise is my presence. He says, hey, in the Old Testament covenant, I lived in that inner sanctum, that holy of holies, where we mentioned the high priest only one time a year could enter. What I'm going to do, I'm going to make you my temple. You have become my holy of holies. You've become the inner sanction, and I have come to dwell with you. From great to the least, everyone, anyone who comes to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Look at the sixth truth. Jesus' priesthood is superior because he is no longer subject to death. He is eternal, his priesthood permanent, and therefore Jesus can mediate an eternal salvation. Look at verses 23 through 25. And the former priest, on the one hand, existed in great numbers. And why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, they died. And when they died, somebody from the Levi family would have to take their place, would be their successor. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also... He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, folks, I hope you're appreciating the impact that this would have had on those Hebrew Christians who initially read this letter. Again, they're struggling with persecution. They're flirting with the idea of going back to Old Testament Judaism. And then, man, he just comes with these series of arguments. How how could anybody do that? How could you possibly want to forfeit what you have in Jesus to go back to the shadow, to go back to the pictures when you got the real deal to enjoy, the one who can save you forever, the one who ministers in an indestructible life, who can meet your every need, who can give you grace in every circumstance, love in every relationship, wisdom in every decision power in every challenge that you face. Why would you even, how could you even consider, consider it? And then look, our time is going quickly. Look at that uh, last argument that he gives. Jesus' priesthood is superior because the offering of himself as a sinless sacrifice for our sins put an end to the Old Testament system of sacrifices. This made Jesus unique. No priest in the Old Testament offered himself as a sacrifice, but Jesus did. He offered himself on Calvary's cross. He who knew no sin became sin. He became who you are, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took our punishment. He took our judgment. And through his blood, he paid the penalty of our sin to be able to impute His righteousness to us. Look at these verses. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Look at this wonderful description of Jesus. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for His own sins. See, the priests in the Old Testament, they were sinners just like the people they were ministering to. And then for the sins of the people, because this, He, Jesus, did what once for all when He offered up Himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, 
but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Amen? Now, as we close, look at the application. Well, okay, what's the application to us today? And let me see if I can just make this extremely simple, but hopefully meaningful. Number one, two applications. There are more that could be stated, but let's mention two. Through Christ alone, we come to know God. Through Christ alone, we come to know God. The second Timothy passage, let me read that. Let me read that for you. It says, what a magnificent truth. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, who desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, to come to know God. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Amen? And then, of course, you're familiar with John 14, 6. Jesus said what? I am not a way, not a truth, a life. He said, I am what? The way. I am the truth, the life. No man, no man comes to the Father but through me. So that's the first application. Through Christ alone, we come to know God. So if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is my joy to let you know that Jesus loves you. That Jesus left the glories of heaven and He came to this earth to die for the penalty of your sin so that He could cleanse you of your guilt so that He could break the power of sin through the power of His resurrection, that you might walk in newness of life and begin to grow in Him and find true fulfillment and satisfaction. And I would invite you today to come to Christ, to put your faith in Christ, what He did for you, something you could have never accomplished by your own merits and performance and efforts and works. It's not by works we are saved, but by His mercy we are saved. And I invite you to come to put your faith in him. And then look at the second truth. Through Christ alone, we have access to God, as we mentioned before, 24-7. Through Christ alone, we have access to God 24-7. The Hebrews 10 passage that we'll look later on in, that's where he talked about. He says, we have boldness. We have confidence. I mean, we can hold our head high and walk right into the presence of God. Again, not on the basis of our works and efforts, because we fail. We're still struggling with sin. But we come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I can boldly come to my brother, to my Lord, my Master Jesus. I can boldly come to my Heavenly Father who values me, who loves me, and is committed to cause all things to work for my good. And he has the ability to do that because what? He's not only priest, he's king. He's in control of all things. What a magnificent truth. So you can imagine the impact for these Hebrew Christians. They're, they're, because of persecution, they're flirting, to, they're flirting to retreating back. He says, wake up, dummies. You never lose, live up the greater for the lesser. And in Jesus is going to be the answer to every problem, to every need that you have. He's the only one that ministers in an indestructible life. He's the only one that can give you the grace to not only endure that persecution, but overcome it. 
Because whether by life or by death, what? To His glory. And if we live, an opportunity, what? To display Christ, to die is our gain in heaven. And so this chapter was extremely significant to those early Hebrew Christians that read it. And I hope it's significant to us. And I hope those two things are driven home in a very simple manner, but a very powerful manner, that through Christ alone we come to know God, and through Christ alone we have access to God 24-7. And so you can come to Him with your hurts, with your aches, with your perplexities, with your questions, and you can cry out to Him without the fear of condemnation, knowing that He loves you, knowing that He stoops in His humility to your humanity and the frailty of that humanity to provide His strength to be perfected in your weakness. Father, thank You for uh, what is just wonderful truth this morning. There's so much packed into this uh, one uh, chapter, and Lord, we, we just basically uh, rushed over it uh, with a broad stroke, but I, I trust uh, we were able to achieve the goal of not getting so lost in the details of missing the main point. I trust we've seen uh, the main points from this chapter. They've been clar- clarified. And Lord, I trust that they'll be meaningful to us now going forward, uh, that uh, you would move uh, in the midst of these that are gathered here this morning. Uh, if there's anyone that does not know you, they would truly see Jesus is the only way to the Father and that they would embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then for those of us that know you, that we would realize we have access to you 24-7. And that the answer to every problem we confront, the answer to every need, every challenge, is found in the Holy of Holies, in God's immediate presence. And so, Lord, encourage us to avail ourselves of that opportunity through prayer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.